It's a small scrap of paper. It's about the size of two postage stamps. It's known as P52, and you can go to a museum in Scotland and see it. What is unique about P52 is that it dates back to a period between 125 AD and 200 AD, and it contains words of this very John's Gospel. There's another museum in Switzerland, and you can go there and see something called P66, and it dates from the same period, but it has almost a complete copy of John's Gospel. Now, I'm telling you this because if you've got John's Gospel in your hand, which I hope you do, you have the best attested piece of literature from ancient history. There are more copies of John closer to the original which John wrote than any other piece of ancient writing. And so it's a trustworthy account written by Jesus' best friend, the beloved disciple John. And John's writing a biography of Jesus and he's introducing us to all the people that Jesus met in John's Gospel, but his emphasis is not on the people Jesus met, but on the Jesus people met. And so in John 3 and 4, we meet Jesus through two very different people. Uh, for example, in John chapter 3, he was a man. In John chapter 4, here is a woman. John chapter 3, the man has a name. His name is Nicodemus. The woman is unnamed. We know her as the woman at the well or the woman of Samaria. He is high status, the equivalent of a senator, a high court judge, a university professor, all wrapped into one. That's Nicodemus. She is a pained outcast of an outcast people, the Samaritans. He comes at night to protect his reputation. She comes at midday to avoid the whispers about her reputation. He is a theologian, but it strikes us that he is ignorant. She is not a theologian, but we're bowled over by her knowledge. He comes to Jesus. Jesus comes to her. Now, John, as I said, who knows Jesus very well, tells us that Jesus really is a people specialist. Jesus, to this point in John's gospel, knew very well Nathaniel before he met him. He knew all about Philip before he met him. He knew that Peter would deny him. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew Thomas's conditions of belief. He needed no advice about people. In fact, John tells us in chapter 2, he himself, Jesus, knew what was in a person. Now, you might think, no one understands me. I remember as an adolescent thinking, my parents don't understand me. My siblings don't understand me. My friends don't understand me. It's no reflection on them because I don't understand me. Does anyone understand me? I've got a friend who's writing a book on the whole content of the Bible. I said, what are you calling the book? He said, I'm calling it yearnings. Yearnings, deep desires in each of us. And isn't it incredible that Jesus knows our yearnings and he understands our yearnings, and he knows where we're going to fulfill those yearnings. And so here is Jesus, a perfect example. In John chapter 4, he's got to walk from Judea, which is in the south. He's got to get to Galilee in the north. And in between Judea and Galilee, there's a large land area called Samaria. And most Jews don't go through Samaria because there's a very bad relationship between Jews and Samaritans. 
And so they go around Samaria to get to Galilee. But Jesus walks straight through the middle. Now, it's hard for us to realise because most of us come from a mixed blood background. That's common in Australia. But in the first century, Jews were pure blood Jews and they looked down on the Samaritans because they were a compromised people. They were mixed blood. The Assyrians had intermarried with Jews and that gave the Samaritans. And the Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean. They even saw them as traitors. It's much easier, therefore, to go around. But look at verse 4. It says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he knew that he had an appointment to keep. And have a look at verse 6. It's noon. Jesus is weary. He stops at the famed Jacob's well. It's a good well. It's got good, clean water. And there's a woman there. Now, what is she doing at this well at noon? All the other women would have come at dawn or dusk in the cool of the day to draw their water. But this woman is there at noon in the heat of the day. And Jesus says in verse 7, will you give me a drink? Now, water is precious. 50 to 60% of your body is made up of water. A well is precious. Good, clean water was vitally important for walkers in the Middle East in the middle of the day. Will you give me a drink? And she's shocked. Look at verse 9. Men don't speak to women, and particularly Jewish men don't speak to Samaritan women. They're unclean. He could ruin his reputation. But notice that Jesus peels back the prejudice, the prejudice that had lasted for centuries between Jews and Samaritans with one request. Will you give me a drink? Now, this is shocking. Are you shocked? But it's really what Christianity is all about. Now, our first ministry for my family was in the country, in a little country town in the northwest of New South Wales called Wee War. And I can remember living in the manse with my family. And one night, one morning, actually, about two o'clock in the morning, I heard a noise in the back of the house. I thought I checked that the kids were there. They were all in bed. But there was definitely noise at the back of the house around the visitor's room. I went out to the back of the house, two o'clock in the morning, the visitor's room. I could see the door was shut. I could see the light was on. I could see there was movement in the room. And with my heart in my mouth, I opened the door. There's a stranger, a complete strange man standing there. He said, oh, I'm in the wrong house, am I? I said, you are, and I'm going to call the police. You've broken and entered into my house. He said, oh, please don't do that. Please don't do that. I said, very well, I won't. I will be merciful. See, that's what mercy is, isn't it? It withholds the punishment that you deserve. Do you know what he said as he left the house? Oh, thanks very much. Wouldn't have $10 on you, would you? He's asking me to actually reward him for breaking into my house. I was prepared to be merciful, but I wasn't prepared to be gracious because that's what grace is. It is giving blessing contrary to desert. It is rewarding in an undeserved way. And that, friends, is what Christianity is all about. And that's what Jesus is all about. He's all about grace. He's all about blessing the undeserving. And notice, that's what drives him through Samaria. That's what drives him to this well. And that's what drives him to initiate conversation with this woman. We know little about her. All we know is that she's at the well at noon. And she is shocked. And now she says... 
what are you doing asking me for water? And look at verse 10. Grace is operative, remember. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who is asking you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. She misunderstands him. She says, where's your bucket? Verse 13. Oh, if you drink the water from this well, you'll thirst again. But verse 14, I'm offering you water which will quench your thirst forever. Imagine that. Every yearning, you'll have it quenched forever. And she says, verse 15, give me that and then I can throw this bucket away and this daily walk at noon to the well. See, friends, Jesus is on her wavelength. He knows people. He knows human yearnings. We all have them. And he says, I can quench your yearning so that you will be fully and forever satisfied. And there's a note of desperation there in verse 15. Sir, she says, give me this water. Give me this water. And then I'll have what I'm looking for. Grace. Blessing contrary to deserving. It initiates. It offers. But have a look at verse 16. Because grace uncovers. It discloses this person's need. It's like peeling back the bandage from a wound so that the sun can get in and let healing take place. And Jesus says in verse 16, it's really the turning point, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus, who's never met this woman before, who knows us all, verse 18, says, that's true. You're right in saying you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and you're now living with your de facto and he is number six. Now notice he has knowledge of her. Remember that great verse, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's followed by John 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved. Jesus says, go call your husband. He's not being harsh with the woman. He's not condemning the woman. But now, in bringing this out into the open, we know why this woman is at the well at noon. We know why she is pained. We know why she is an outcast. And this woman has probably had yearnings. Our yearnings are to be known and to be loved. Nicodemus looked for the satisfaction of his yearnings in keeping the commandments. He looked for religion. But this woman looked to romance. And you imagine each time she took up with a new man, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one who will know me. And yet he's the one who will love me. And what's surprising here is that Nicodemus, who was so religious and so steadfast about keeping God's Ten Commandments, wasn't automatically qualified for God's kingdom. And this woman, with her track record, wasn't automatically disqualified for God's kingdom. So Jesus is for the up and outer. Jesus is for the down and outer. And Jesus is for the middle and outer as well. And he says, you'll never thirst again. You're looking to quench your thirst in the wrong place. Now, I think this woman's got some experience because if you look in verse 20, she seeks to deflect him. And if you ever want to deflect a Christian, raise a theological issue. 
If a Christian's sharing the gospel with you and you can feel the heat coming on you, just raise the issue of infant baptism or something like that. What do you think about infant baptism or human free will? She raises, verse 20, the issue of the mountain. You Jews say it's that mountain. We say it's this mountain. Which do you think? And Jesus says it's not a matter of where. It is a matter of who and how. The Father wants true worshippers who worship him spiritually and they can worship him anywhere. But they worshipping according to the truth he has revealed. Now this woman in verse 19, when Jesus speaks to her about her husbands, she says, sir, I understand that you are a prophet. Now, she says in verse 25, we know that Messiah is coming and when he comes, he'll tell us everything. And Jesus says, look at verse 26. He tells her what he has told no one else, not even his disciples. He says to this pained outcast, this Samaritan woman, I am the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. She is the first person in John's gospel to be told this news. And that's what grace does. It brings great privilege. John, the author, is introducing you to the Jesus people met. He knows what makes you tick. He's not harsh. He didn't come to condemn you but he came to be an instrument of grace. He went through Samaria. He initiated contact with this woman. He offered this woman water for life. He uncovers her wound and despite her attempts, he persists with her. And look what happens. She leaves her water jar behind and goes to town. And verse 29 tells you what she says. She says to her fellow villagers, come see a man. And you can imagine them, oh, here she goes again, another man. I wonder what this man's going to be like. But look at verse 42. Jesus becomes the talk of the town. We've heard him for ourselves, they say. And we know that this man is indeed the saviour of the world. He is the gift of God. That's what he says of himself. The woman says he's a prophet. He says he is Messiah, God come in the flesh. And now we see that he's described as the saviour of the world. We used to teach our children a lovely chorus. It goes like this. He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek, it was to save he came. And when we call him saviour, and when we call him saviour, and when we call him saviour, then we call him by his name. Yearnings, they can be met. They'll never be met by religion. They'll never be met by romance. They'll never be met by winning or success or pleasure or wealth because if you go there to fulfil your yearnings, then it's inexhaustible the need to quench a thirst that doesn't go away. What's the song say? Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. You see, nothing on this planet can satisfy your yearnings and so maybe you've been made by a creator who makes you for another place beyond this planet and it's from that other place that your yearnings can be met. 
You see, the key to here, John chapter 4, is actually in John chapter 7. Just flip over a couple of pages in your Bibles there to John chapter 7 and look at those three verses that were read for us from verse 37 to 39 because they interpret this woman's experience. John 7 verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, Jesus says, and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of clean, fresh, living water. And that's what Jesus offered to this woman. And verse 39 tells us that Jesus was actually talking about the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. That's how your yearnings will be met. That's how I can be fully and forever satisfied. We are not automatically qualified by being good. None of us can be good enough. None of us are automatically qualified because we are so bad. But Jesus says, come to me and drink, whoever you are. Believe in me and you'll never thirst again. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means two things. It means that you'll be convinced that he is the gift of God, that he is the Lord, that he is the saviour of the world. And secondly, you will have a commitment to entrust yourself to him and turn your back on all those ways you seek to fulfil your yearnings and seek fulfilment only in him. You see, conviction and commitment and two things will happen. According to the Bible, God says that he will take and give. He will take your independence and your pride and the ways you sought to satisfy your thirst and hurt yourself in the process and hurt many others in the process as well. And he will take all those efforts and at the cross he will forgive them and give you a fresh start. But the second thing he'll do, not only take and deal with your sin, but he will give you the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who will never leave you. He will live within you. He'll give you a new outlook. He'll give you new loves. He'll give you new desires. He'll give you new aspirations. And he'll fulfill your yearnings. But you only have the Holy Spirit as you come to trust in Jesus. And friends, that is what God says a Christian is. A Christian is a person who trusts in Jesus and has the opportunity of doing that by grace, contrary to his deserving. He has his sin forgiven and he has the Holy Spirit of God, God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit living in him or her. Do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Are you searching to have your yearnings fulfilled elsewhere, anywhere else? Jesus says, come to me and drink. And in 1967, it was so good to know that the Jesus who knew Nathaniel and the Jesus who knew Philip and the Jesus who knew Peter and the Jesus who knew Judas and the Jesus who knew Thomas is the Jesus who knows me. And he's the Jesus who knows you. So how do you start this new life? Well, come back with me to John chapter 7, verse 37. And let me tell you how I started this new life. Uh, look at verse 37. And I challenge you, have you placed your name there? Look at verse 37. Read it like this. I'll read it with my name. If David thirsts, let David come to me 
and drink. Lord Jesus, I come. If David believes in me, conviction and commitment, out of David's heart will flow a never-ending supply of living water. How to be fully and forever satisfied? It's grace. It's undeserved. It initiates contact with you today. You are listening to this message. He offers you living water to fulfil your yearnings. He might be peeling back your past efforts. Was it in ambition? Was it in pleasure? Was it in wealth? Was it in romance? Was it in being good? He peels back those efforts. And though you want to reject him and want to keep away from him, his grace persists. And he's saying, put your name there. And when you call him saviour, and when you call him saviour, and when you call him saviour then, you call him by his name. Well, please join me in prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer that you might like to pray if you want to know the living water that Jesus gives. Our Heavenly Father, I am sorry that I've sought fulfilment everywhere else but where it is found in the Lord Jesus. Forgive me for that and those I've hurt in that search. Please forgive me that the hurt caused. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that through him I can have forgiveness. And thank you that he makes available to us the Holy Spirit. Now please forgive me and give me that gift which you'll never take away of your Holy Spirit to guide my life now as I live for the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.